From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Yeah, we're going to do radio now, Colin, if that's all right with you. If yeah, you, could... you go right ahead. Okay, thank you. Um, <laughs> if you'd like to be part of the program, the number is 833-288-EWT. Did you just look up and say, oh, my goodness, I'm not in my office? <laughs> I... <laughs> No comment. <laughs> I'm still looking for my glasses. <laughs> 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. Um, if you would like to uh, call us from outside the United States and Canada, we've got a number for you. That's one 205 And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one 1- Two zero five two seven one two nine eight five. You can always send us an email, openline at ewtn.com. Or you can text your question, text the letters EWTN to 55000. Wait for a response. Text your first name and your question message, and data rates may apply. I'm Jack Williams. Charles Beery is our celebrity producer today. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every Friday, the aforementioned, ill-prepared Colin Donovan. How are you? Well, I bring myself. That's something. <laughs> well, you there know, you I'm, go. Uh, other than that, I'm doing well, but a little bit sad, as we were discussing. Yeah, a little, little bit of a heavy heart for us here at EWTN. Yeah. A mixture of joy and and happiness for what we know to be true but have a hard time grasping in this realm. That's right, and that's the passing of the wonderful Dr. Alice von Hildebrand, um, a good friend of Mother Angelica's uh, before you or I came along. Um, <clears throat> I, of course, met her in the 90s and on her many trips down here to do uh, television programs with Mother and to do series for EWTN, which then continued into the 2000s. And so she became a good personal friend as well as somebody that I knew through my responsibilities here at EWTN and uh, uh, had the pleasure of having her at my wedding with uh, Andrea in 2006. So uh, that was that was a wonderful event for us and happy to maintain that friendship by visiting her or by email over the years. And um, that had started slowing down in the last couple of years as she has had a fall and it just became too difficult. And so um, not terribly surprised at the ripe age of 99 that she passed away today, this morning, in fact, about 1 a.m. 98, I think. Was it 98? 98, yeah. Yeah. Born so, in the same year as Mother Angelica. Yeah, so the the two of them, uh, she outlived Mother. <clears throat> But she had a very interesting life, not le- least of which is uh, marrying as a grad student, uh, uh, or after being a grad student under Dietrich von Hildren, marry- marrying him uh, and being his wife until his uh, own passing. Uh, 
uh, and continuing on his legacy and work as the, all the students and uh, Dietrich von Hildebrand have done. Um, and I have to a- extend a thank you especially to uh, John Henry Crosby and to his dad who teaches philosophy at uh, Franciscan University because uh, they have both done a lot to keep that uh, legacy alive and to keep it going. And over years, greatly appreciated John Henry's, uh, you know, efforts to keep her friends informed of uh, how she was doing, her health, and so on. And sadly, um, the Von Hildebrand Foundation put out the, the message this morning that she had passed away. <coughs> yeah, and she was, uh, as I said earlier, <coughs> goodness gracious, I don't know where mm. this came from. <coughs> but they were both models in their own right of tremendous courage. They were. Um, As she tells the story in The Heart of a Lion, which is a bio she wrote about 20 years ago now regarding her husband, uh, he had been specifically designated by the Nazis as an enemy, and so he had to flee Germany because of his outspoken uh, opinions, and he made it to the United States, and he started teaching philosophy at Fordham University in New York. Uh, And so that is how... Uh, people like uh, Alice von Hildebrand or Dr. William Mara, who was also a friend of the network and of the friars here, teaching them philosophy for a number of years, um, uh, met uh, because through his being a professor at uh, Fordham University. So there's that legacy of resisting evil. And in her own case, after she got her uh, doctorate and began her teaching career, uh, she was at Hunter College, which is a college of the City University of New York, And she taught there for 37 years, but again, uh, amid persecution, because although she didn't teach religion, she didn't teach theology or the faith, she taught philosophical truth. And they couldn't impeach her professorial character, but they could impugn her because she was leading people to to Christ. A lot like Donald Sr. a number of years later in Kansas, uh, who also suffered the same because he taught through philosophy and literature, um, the the faith, essentially, because he was teaching the truth. And so in, in her career there, she suffered a great deal at the, at the hands of those who tried to get her out of Hunter College and so on. Meanwhile, she delighted her fans, of course, many of them who were moved to, her, her students rather, many of them who were moved to uh, become Catholics, probably not all, or even great numbers, but uh, they too learned a love of the truth from her and, and followed up on where that love uh, led. And she was actually the inaugural instructor at the House of Studies for our own friars here. That's right. Uh, back in the 90s, uh, the House of, uh, House of <laughs> Studies was set up in order to enable the friars to get a pre-theology, philosophical, and theological preparation before going off to the seminary. Uh, I took part in that as well, uh, uh, teaching uh, theology, especially that of John Paul II and uh, marriage and celibacy. Uh, Dr. Mara was involved in that. I believe uh, Dr. Garrity uh, came along after Dr. Mara, and of course uh, others that they invited to participate in that. And so um, that was one of the first efforts, I think, that were, was made to secure the intellectual you know, development of the friars here uh, and to make sure that they had you know, not only the love of Christ and the love of the faith, but they had the instruments they needed to go on and take on the world. As these names we've been just throwing about <laughs> this afternoon uh, were able to do. And she, uh, 
just being not only by the holiness of her life, but by the situation that we knew she found herself in in the last days. Uh, I think we have every reason to believe <clears throat> that she would have received everything that Holy Mother Church has to offer uh, upon one's death. So we will pray for the repose of her soul. And I think uh, with a certain amount of, of reasonable hope, uh, rely on her intercession as well. Uh, and I think so. We can do that as a private devotion, as a public matter. The Church has its norms and rules in that respect. Of course, we don't presume her sanctity or her presence with the Lord, although I think our own experience is that she is there, and we may hold that privately. We're not canonizing anybody, but we continue to pray for them because before God, only God is uh, going to be the judge, and so we trust. We trust in him, but she did so much and and was herself such a wonderful woman that uh, gives us great confidence of that, uh, of our own opinion, I would say. Um, so, well, time to squeeze an email here, I think, in. Uh, David would like to know, did Mary receive additional graces throughout her life? Yes, of course she did, because as a human being, she grew. Uh, if, if our Lord could grow in terms of a natural wisdom and the thin knowledge and experience of a human being, Our Lady did that as well. He was completely holy, because obviously he was God. She grew in holiness as we all do affirming by her moral acts uh, the truth as she understood it, and in the circumstances which she understood it. She wasn't infallible, but there was no moral fault in the decision she made. So, for example, asking our Lord, you know, uh, to tell the stewards to get the wine. (laughs) She didn't know what the plan of God was. (laughs) She asked in her innocence, in her human simplicity, not knowing the future, and the the Lord responded, accordingly. And in a way, she inaugurated the ministry of her son by that human choice. So throughout her life, she made those choices and she continued to uh, grow in charity uh, until the moment of her death, as we all do. You know, at that moment, some people have, uh, have suggested that when our Lord said, you know, what business is this of mine, that he was essentially kind of looking at her, you know, and in some ways saying, you know what's you know what we're doing here. <laughs> well, and maybe she didn't because she wasn't God, but uh, it was a mother's hope, and he responded to it. Yeah, very good. Eight three three two eight eight EWTN is our toll free number. Eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. It's EWTN's open line uh, Friday, rather, with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. With news from EWTN's Vatican Bureau, you can watch all the important events from Rome, even if you don't have TV access. Using the latest technology, we've made it possible to watch all the latest news from the Holy See, all delivered directly to your home via live streams. Watch live on EWTN's YouTube channel and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Wide open phone lines for you at 833 888 
888-900-3986. Jimmy writes in, uh, I'm a recent convert. How should I respond to my Protestant friends and family who say the Catholic Church is just another style, and the only thing that matters is that you believe in Jesus? Well, it is important that you believe in Jesus, otherwise you wouldn't come to any style of Christianity. But you want to come to the style, to use his terminology, that our Lord himself uh, established. And the scripture gives us confidence that he established a church, a body of people, an ecclesia, just as the synagogue and, and the uh, worship of the Israelites was of a body of people, with a particular structure and particular pastors and uh, serving as the teachers, as the sanctifiers and the rulers, priest, prophet, and king, as, as Christ was priest, prophet, and king. And so we look to the scriptures to show us where that is. And we can look very definitively in the New Testament to see that he did establish something concrete. Now, as some have argued, well, that failed. And along comes a human being who has to reestablish it. Maybe they emphasize one certain element of doctrine, baptism, or maybe they emphasize, you know, some other uh, element uh, of doctrine, uh, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But the point is, there is already a body, a style, if you will, a way of worshiping and a people who worship that do so according to the teachings of Christ, according to those uh, appointed by Christ to lead his, uh, his people, his sheep. Uh, and again, we see in the New Testament who those were, the apostles and those whom they appointed after them. And so very early on, this controversy developed in the church. And the question was between those who claimed to have a new doctrine and those who said our doctrine comes from Christ through the apostles. And we ourselves are successors of the apostles in carrying on the teaching, the priestly and the governing ministry of, uh, of Christ uh, in the church as it goes forward in history. And so that's what the Catholic Church claims to be, and it has the historical data to support it. It has the scriptural data uh, to support it. Uh, is not just those for those who believe in certain doctrines, uh, believing in Christ, of course, all, as all of them do, but it's also for those who are universally united in Christ, who are spread throughout the world, which is what Catholic means. Uh, and so... Uh, that's where the church's right comes from. It's a logic flowing out of the logic of Scripture, Old and New Testament, with its corporate body of people who represent the two covenants, Israel and the church. Uh, and uh, so that is where uh, grace through Christ is to be found. That is where teaching from Christ is to be found. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833 833- Two eight eight three nine eight six. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. Uh, Karen would like to know what's the difference between God's blessings and God's grace. Uh, grace is is not a, a thing. This is a hard thing, I think, people to grasp. But uh, it is a God acting in the life for of the person for different purposes. Uh, we speak of sanctifying grace as that which justifies. Um, It's not a thing poured into the soul. It's the uniting of the soul to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, effected by the Holy Spirit in baptism. We speak of the different graces of the the virtues, 
uh, by which the habits that we have, habits of patience or charity or love or justice or whatever they are, become actualized. In other words, our cooperating with God acting through us. Uh, and so we, the, the term grace can be applied to each of those uh, occasions when not relying on ourselves but relying upon God, uh, we receive from him union through sanctifying grace or a particular grace through the sacraments, which is he is empowered to do certain things as the church teaches. Uh, when, we, when we exercise the, the moral virtues ourselves in union with him uh, in a graceful way, the term blessing, all of those things, of course, are blessing in that by them God blesses us. He gives us, you know, something which is beneficial for the future. Uh, but we often use the term in the church in a very narrow way. As you go to Mass, you receive a blessing, or maybe some providential event happens, and it's a blessing. So I think it's used in that way more than a grace, although it wouldn't be wrong to say, oh, I met somebody I've been looking to talk to for years, and they set me straight on something. What a grace, or what a blessing. We do sort of use those terms interchangeably. But technically, we have a pretty clear idea what a, a grace is, and a blessing seems to have both uh, has, have a more common meaning for anything by which God gives us some uh, benefit providentially in, in life's activities or, uh, or through the church in her sacraments and so on. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of open phone lines for you and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Joe is right here in Birmingham, Alabama, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Joe, you are on with Colin Donovan. Thank you. My question is, during the two weeks of Christmas and the two weeks of Easter, are Fridays like normal Fridays where you would still offer a sacrifice, or is it more of a celebration? Mm-hmm. Um, Fridays is a penitential day throughout the year, except when Fridays are a liturgical solemnity. The Friday of Easter week is treated as a solemnity because the Easter liturgy is essentially celebrated all week. Whereas, as you notice from the calendar we just have gone through for the week after Christmas, we have different memorials of saints and so on, so those are not. So the penitential laws would be in force on the Friday of Easter week, unless it's or Christmas week, unless it's actually Friday is Christmas, uh, or Christmas is on a Friday. But in Easter week, we can use that in fully in celebration of, of, of the resurrection of our Lord. So liturgically, that's the, the, the dis difference between those two weeks. Does that make sense, Joe? It, it does. Thank you. You're welcome. I ask that question every time, and I never like your answer. <laughs> 833-288-EWTN. Substitute, is, substitute. <laughs> EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Um, there was a question here I wanted to ask you. Here it is. Barbara, she says, in the book of Isaiah and in Revelation, there's a phrase, holy, holy, holy. In both passages, the angels are covering their eyes with their wings. Is there significance to this? Yes, I think so. You're thinking of Isaiah, uh, an expression, uh, kadosh, 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 in Hebrew that comes down into the, into the Mass in the Sanctus. Uh, 
uh, where the, the seraphim cover their eyes. Uh, this is, if you think of the different postures of the liturgy, which have significance, and not only in the Catholic Church, but also in, in, in other religions, this idea of humbling oneself is to get lower before God. It's sort of a human gesture. You know, so you, you, know, you kneel for Holy Communion or you genuflict for Holy Communion. The Church permits the bow for, uh, as sufficient for Holy Communion. It, you're making some act of humility. Uh, in some religions, such as in Islam, they bow fully to the ground for prayer. This acting and humbling oneself before, before God. So that's a natural human gesture, and that's, that's really where it comes from. Uh, and so when you look at it from that point of view, you can see the great significance of it, that this is a way of manifesting before God, essentially that he is God and I am not. This is one of the great differences in our world today is between those who will say he is God and I am not and those who will not say it, either because they don't recognize a God or they think he is so distant and uninterested in man that all they can think of is have themselves at the middle of the universe. In any case, it's the, it's the initial and primary distinction. Faith in God or not faith in God. And it, it's a gesture which reflects that in varying degrees. And liturgically, we see that, for example, uh, different kinds of uh, levels of it in what the priest is required to do. And the laity very often do this um, uh, in the course of the Mass themselves. In, uh, that is, at the human name of Jesus, to do a head bow, also used for the saint of the day when their name uh, appears in the liturgy. At the, the names of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a deeper bow. And then at the consecration for the concelebrants, you have the full over, uh, you know, perpendicular, perpendicular bow uh, reflecting what is taking place there, the, the God-man becoming present on our altars. And so each of these are by degrees are saying something sacramentally. The human name of Jesus, of course, is the most important human name, but it's of his human, the name of his nature, human nature. <clears throat> and in the Trinity, we have the, the great reality, and of course, in the consecration, we have the priest being present. And so the deacon kneels down, the concelebrants bow fully over. Uh, we are kneeling down. All of these are sacramental signs of our dignity as opposed to God's by surrendering to him that which is ours. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Uh, Nathaniel says, my Protestant friend says that infants were not considered part of the household, so you can't use the verse, the entire household was baptized, to support infant baptism. What say you in 60 seconds? <laughs> well, in 60 seconds, uh, who knows what the author meant? Well, the church knows. That's how I know, uh, because this is how the church has always practiced. And you will not find East or West between uh, what would later become the Orthodox, the church, the Greek-speaking church, and the Latin-speaking church. Uh, you will not find any difference on this. Therefore, it is the ancient practice of Christians. Anything different is the not ancient practice of Christians. 
And so that is its own evidence. So I think you read it according to the mind of the uh, of the Holy Spirit in this case, uh, which is that the intention that all of the people were, all of the members of the household were baptized. Also because Jews themselves initiated their boys as representative of, of, of Israel into Israel through circumcision. So there's that analogy as well. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A rare opportunity on a Friday for you to get in at 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Wide open phone lines for you on this Friday. Colin Donovan, our own Vice President of Theology, is in the house and ready to take your questions. 833-288-3986. Chris says, can someone receive an annulment before they are divorced? Oh, normally what I think the, the church is looking for, and I'm not sure all dioceses or how standard this is, is that the issue of whether you can be civilly reconciled is settled first, if I'm not mistaken, in most cases. Yeah, I don't think you can file a case unless you're civilly divorced. Yeah. I think that's a prerequisite. Right. So that, I guess, it shows an earnestness because you presumably and hopefully, and uh, I'm sure under questioning, what efforts did you make to be reconciled to fulfill the vows? And then can begin the uh, analysis of whether the vows were valid to begin with. You know, so the church doesn't look for divorce as settling the issue of whether the person is married or not, but settling the civil effects of marriage. Uh, in a case where the couple have already determined it's impossible for them to remain together, um, share cohabitation, share property, finances, all of that. Uh, so uh, that's a pretty severe condition already that would bring them to thou say, well, in addition to that, might our marriage not have been, you know, valid from the beginning? That's a whole other question. That's the marriage question. The other is the rights and property question, which is not the same at all. We head next to Joseph in Huntsville, Alabama, listening on the EWTN app. Joseph, you are on with Colin Donovan. Uh, Thank you for taking my call. So my question has to do with the respect of people's consciences. If I could just set up the, the question a little bit. So I'm a supervisor who works in an organization that requires the COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, and so people who work for me have uh, requested religious exemptions. And I guess my real question is, if those religious exemptions are denied and I'm asked to take um punitive action against them, what is my moral responsibility? And I I will preference it, too. I've looked at the catechism, and unless I'm taking it out of context, it seems to be stating that we have to respect people's moral consciences. And then also I I look at, like, things that Mm -hmm. articles that I read, and it appears that the Vatican also is encouraging the vaccines and for a, for moral or uh, uh, what do you call it for the common good, mm-hmm. but the 
what I read in the catechism says, even with a common good, you have to respect people's moral consciences. So I, I fear that if I if I have to execute some punitive action, I'm kind of going against the, these people's moral consciences. Mm-hmm. However, if I don't, then I may be punished or fired myself. Sure. Yeah. And Are there more than 100 employees in your operation? Uh, well, my my organization, it's actually a government organization that I work for. Well, that oh. makes so it whole di- Say no more. That's a whole different yeah, yeah. animal. I was going to say you may have gotten some relief yesterday from the Supreme, from the Supreme Court, but that's a government agency, so it doesn't apply. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, f- the first thing to do is to understand, you know, it's sort of a cart and horse question. First question is to understand what the church is saying regarding the vaccines. Okay, it's one thing to propose that, as the, as the Holy Father did, that in charity people should get the vaccines for the sake of themselves and for the sake of the common good. Okay, so it's clearly, I think, if the vaccines do what they are proposed to do, and people will have arguments about that, but just let's say they do for the sake of argument, they do what they're proposed to do, then clearly it's we do this with measles, we do this with polio, we do this with, with other things, with tetanus and so on. We see that there are the vaccines have an effect, it's a good effect, and therefore it's morally legitimate to take them. Now this is leaving aside the abortion complication, and I'll get to that. So you have the value of the vaccines and the good that they accomplish, as a couple hundred years of medical history demonstrate uh, to be the case. So you could say, as the Pope did, as others have said, to get the vaccine for the common good is a, is a thing. Now, everybody is in an individual situation, and this is where conscience comes in. So you then have to look at what is the obligation of the individual. Now, the church has broad latitude or teaches broad latitude, not because it made this up, but as a way of development of theology over the centuries, with regard to the element of choice in medical decisions. The individual gets to weigh the, the medical value to them. They, get the, they have to be in better, well informed by their doctor. They get to weigh the medical value to them, the risks and the benefits to them of a particular therapy or treatment. Then they get to decide whether this is something that they can tolerate. Uh, maybe they can't tolerate it because they have, don't have the money to pay for it, or maybe they and they can't get anybody else to pay for it. Maybe they can't tolerate it because it has a horrific element to it, uh, a pain and suffering and longevity to this treatment that they just can't see themselves enduring. All of these subjective reasons countervalue then the objective value of the therapy, in this case, vaccination. That's the subjective conscience element. Everyone thinks it's a conscience decision whether the, va- the, va- the vaccine is a good vaccine or whether it's... No, it's the decision of the individual to take this treatment at this time in these circumstances which affect them since they are the ones who have the responsibility before God for their, for their bodies. Uh, the common good responsibility is also is a certainly a heavy burden. And in a pandemic, that's something that is being called upon doesn't relieve them of the other, uh, the other responsibilities. But let's find a comparable situation, and I think probably used this before on the program. You know, you're walking along the road and you see somebody struggling in the water. 
Now, if you're if the water is calm and you're a great simmer swimmer and you walk on by, I would think you have some moral fault there, perhaps even great fault. You could have saved them. Uh, I'm not bothered. You know, I'm late for my haircut and I can't stop. The water is turbulent and you're not a great swimmer. You have to personally in that. Does does your conscience allow you to set aside your family and other things and the possibility be perhaps even great that you will die in, in by trying to save this individual. You know, again, if you're, if you're an EMT on, uh, on his personal time, that's a different matter than if you're the ordinary person. So the responsibilities to good can disappear or at least be lessened by different kinds of impossibility. I just described physical impossibility. You're not capable of saving that person. But there is a moral impossibility as well, and that is the repugnance in this particular case of the vaccine with its origin, along with any risk which you rightly or wrongly judge to be of no benefit to you, uh, even if you're wrong, you have that decision to make. Those things can relieve you of that common good, and it's called the impossibility uh, goes away or the obligation goes away by virtue of that inconvenience, of a grave inconvenience to you. I might lose my life, or I might give sustenance to abortion, or something like this. So different people are going to weigh that. Now, the church has said the abortion element is remote and so far away that, yes, materially you're not involved in it, but some people are still, they've fought their whole life against abortion, or as Abby Johnson, she worked in the abortion industry, she can't do it. So that's the subjective moral element that can excuse even something which otherwise would be a common good thing. Uh, So that would do that. You could say fighting for your country in warfare, we give, the countries give uh, conscience objections for that. You can, can take those. The difficulty then comes for the personal, for the individual in your situation where you have chosen this or somebody that works for you has chosen this. And that is the employers following whatever rules are imposed on them by the government or whatever uh, in a government organization that makes for additional difficulty, as Jack was alluding. Um, so all of those risks are ones which you yourself can should weigh. I can't tell you fight to the death on this. Perhaps you can say, well, I have difficulty, you know, punishing these individuals. Uh, they're exercising their, can you, you know, let somebody else in the organization you know, do that. I I would prefer not having to have to do that. So you have to work with your employer to find out what accommodation for your conscience on this matter, Um, even if they find in the end they can't allow this exceptions of the the others. uh, If they want to do this, the difficulty to you is real. And so that's the framework that applies, I think, to them in making their choice not to be vaccinated, and the objective right or wrong of it and all the judgments go into that. People can make those decisions all the day, but they're the ones who have to stand for them, not uh, not others. And in your case as well, because that's the similar situation except in this question of the punishing of them. 
You know, so I would seek accommodation with your employer on that point if you don't want to do it. And then you yourself can weigh, you know, the other, the other aspects of it in your circumstances. Is that helpful, Joseph? Y- yeah, it is. It is. You know, I, I just don't want to feel, I think about Pontius Pilate basically mm-hmm. washing his hands. And I just feel like, um, you know, I have to answer to my conscience as well. Uh, you know, I will say that I am vaccinated, but just because I chose and believe that it's morally acceptable, I can't impose that upon someone who has an objective to something that's tied to uh, to the serious nature of the, these vaccines. Right, and that and that's that's the uh, you know that's the thing that that keeps coming up in this case, and the CDF in its uh, Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in its document on the vaccines, uh, spoke of this when they said, for those who have a conscious objection, and I'm not sure this clearly applies in you, to you personally in this case, then they have to use the other means. And I, the other means would be those which medicine, science tells us, social distancing, masking. you know. But then you get into the debates with even that work or not. But the point is somebody has to decide whether, in my case, I believe this information I'm being given and whether I'm going to act on it. And that is something only they can decide and others can't decide for them. Uh, you know, it's quite, I, my own opinion on this is simply a rational one. I can understand how the government can fingerprint you, do cheek swabs for DNA externally to the person. But sticking things in people and doing surgeries against their will, will other than obviously well, in emergency surgery, you could presume it wouldn't be against their will. They would need something repaired, fixed, whatever. They're brought in unconscious. But th- there is a line here, and I think government is overstepping it, but you can't necessarily convince government of that. You, you know, you, st- you, you, you started to touch on something with the, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith article that I think is lost in translation oftentimes. You know, I have a, I have a definite opinion, which I will not share now, Mm-hmm. Right, but I could make a lucid, passionate claim for either side very easily. Right, that would at least it may not convince you one way or another of the argument, but mm-hmm. it would definitely convince you that that was my position. Okay, I could do yeah. that. But whichever choice we made, the congregation's letter made it clear that people of good conscience are free to make either choice. And that regardless of the choice you make, there are responsibilities that go along with that choice, which is what you started yes. to touch on. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, if you're if you're being vaccinated, you know, now we're starting to learn there are a lot of medical yeah. You still got to get the other things. So it's not like this is, a, you know, things go away simply because you choose vaccination uh, any more than it goes away because you choose not vaccination. The point is, and the medical health care issues, only the individual gets to decide that, even if they decide it wrongly. You know, in two families with a, with a loved one dying, and there's a question of when, you know, when finally the uh, care that is provided is futile. It won't kill them, but it'll allow them to die naturally by removing of, of say, the uh, ventilator or something like that. That decision is up to the individual, and two families can decide that differently. And so, 
that's the thing the church respects, and John Paul II made this clear with regard to that particular issue in the 90s. And that's what is at work here, too. The medical ethics or the Catholic teaching on this doesn't change. The application can vary from uh, within people of goodwill whose consciences simply come to different conclusions. And that's what is to be respected here. The lack of respect for conscience is when all of the right things are done and the right steps for decision-making are made and the and the the reason is respected and teaching is respected and then people are ready to punish you for having simply followed that because the society that is prepared to punish people in those circumstances is prepared to punish them in much lesser circumstances 833-288-EWTN is our toll free number 833 833- Two eight eight three nine eight six. Join us for the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass from Our Lady of the Angels Chapel every single day, 8 a.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio and Television. Next up is Olivia Grace in the great state of California, listening on the Amazon Echo. Olivia Grace, you're on the program. What's your, quest- what's your question today? Um... What city did Jesus build his church, or what town? Well, he said that at Caesarea Philippi in the Galilee, or at the northern end of the Galilee. And so his church that he was speaking of there, uh, the Greek word that's used in the New Testament is the ecclesia. This is the assembly of the elect in uh, among the Greeks. In other words, those who had the right to vote and make decisions for the Greek city-states. And so the, the analogy there is that those who are members of the mystical body of Christ through baptism belong to this ecclesia, this church. So that's the principal meaning. The secondary meaning, of course, refers, we use it commonly, to the, to the physical building itself or the institutional reality. So in Catholic teaching, the church in the broadest sense of that are all of the elect who are in heaven, all of the elect who are being purified in purgatory, and all of the elect who are here on earth, sometimes called the the church militant, the church that is still at battle, if you will, because we're still at battle, as is is clear from every, every single day of our lives. And so the church in this broad category, of course, has Christ as its head, But in the visible and in the temporal, in the world that we see, it also has a unity and a reality through those who represent Christ the head, and that is the apostles. And so the church that the apostles built in that sense of the assembly of the just is the Catholic Church. And there's a wonderful, um, uh, I, I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago on a similar question, and that is, an author from the second century, Irenaeus of Lyon, who was a bishop in ancient France, Gaul, and they had this problem in the first and second century as well. People who, after the death of the apostles, remember John lived to his 90s in in Ephesus, but uh, most of the other apostles were martyred much sooner than that, so as soon as they were gone, heresy started springing up. You had the Judaizers even during St. Paul's time. You had the Galatians with their uh, 
angelology or whatever it was that was uh, driving them bonkers. Uh, you had the di- these different errors popping up, and that only increased in the in in the second century, in the 100 and beyond. And so Irenaeus, writing about 170, said, "Well, where do you go? Do you listen to these men who say, well, this is what this means?" And there was no Bible at this time, so they're just preaching from what the Gospels say or whatever books of the New Testament, what would become the New Testament, were available to them. Said, what, what do people, this is what Jesus meant when he said this or that or the other thing. And Irenaeus said, well, why are you listening to them? Look to those places where the successors of the apostles, in other words, where the apostles appointed bishops, episcopoi, Titus and Timothy, for example, in the New Testament we see clearly. Look there and see, well, what are they, what are they teaching in those places? Because we can see the successors of bishops in those places going back to the apostles. And principally in the See of Peter in Rome, we see the successor of all of the bishops going back to Peter. And he names them. And that's today considered the most authoritative historical list of the bishops of Rome, of the popes going back to Peter. So this criteria of apostolic teaching confirmed by apostolic individuals coming down from the time of Christ and the apostles to our own day is where you find the church, the assembly of those who have received the apostolic teaching, the apostolic sacraments, and who have the apostolic pastors in the bishops who are successors of those very apostles. So all of that is packed into the idea of the church. And so you find in there that, you know, we, we see Peter referred to as the rock in Matthew 13, in Matthew 18, or Matthew, uh, yeah, Matthew 16, 13 through 18. And then in Matthew 18, we see the other apostles receiving an equivalent authority, but not a unique authority. In the, uh, in the book of Revelation, we see that the church is those that has the apostles as the foundation and Christ as the cornerstone. Well, this is the visible church, that which derives from the apostles. That is the Catholic church. So that's where you find cha- the Catholic church, and that's what Jesus meant because he was God and he knew how it would all play out. God bless you, Olivia. We appreciate the phone call. Next up is Francis in Richmond, Virginia, listening on the EWTN app. Francis, you're on with Colin Donovan. Thank you. Uh, Colin, I have a question. Um, My dad died in the year 2005 from Alzheimer's, and he Mm -hmm. had it real bad. And while we were in the hospital room with my dad, and he's unconscious, everything did, did everything we said, everything we said to him, would my dad be able to recollect that, um, say, in heaven or in purgatory, would everything we told him and talked to him about, would his soul have recollected or heard all that, what we said? Well, you know, uh, even humanly speaking, uh, people who wake up from comas report that they often hear what was going on around them. So even on the human level, that could have been going into his human memory, uh, with whatever effect uh, that has on the soul by way of uh, a spiritual uh, effect. Uh, in any case, I would say provisionally the answer to the question would be yes, because in God, all that transpired uh, would be uh, known by God, and in God they 
could potentially be uh, be informed of that, to know how their loved ones are doing on earth, uh, to know of the circumstances of their own death and so on. So we can't say, yes, they would have known either, either medically or spirit theologically, but I think you could make a case for it, um, as I just tried to do, but with no guarantees. <laughs> Lulu is watching us on YouTube, and she wants to know if you can please give your take on the human having the heart of a pig. Is it bad? <laughs> well, it's certainly not optimal, but if it works, um, my my thought was a purely medical one. You know, when I had a stent put in, I had to take these anti-rejection drugs for a couple months because the possibility of a piece of metal being rejected by the body. Uh, does this poor guy have to put up with the, uh, you know, anti you know, the drugs they give you for transplants and so on for the entire time of his life. But uh, I don't think that there's necessarily... What about the ethics of the concept? Yeah, I, I don't I don't personally see any issue with that. We've been using, uh, I think, pig valves in hearts for a time uh, and, and other things like this. Uh, the, the parts of the body which have a great moral difficulty associated with them are the brain, and the reproductive organs, especially those which contain the, the, the seed of mankind, male and female. Uh, those it would be immoral to give to another because that represents a particular human being and the progeny that would come from that. Uh, so, but, uh, but the organs themselves, I don't see any particular, you know, case for, say, non-reproductive or the non, non-brain type organs. Well, Colin, we're flat out of time. Thanks again for another great week. Thank you. Let's do it Glad again to next be here. Friday. Okay. <laughs> All right. On behalf of our host, Colin Donovan, our celebrity producer, Charles Beery, our call screener, Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. It's been another great week. Back at it tomorrow. Not tomorrow. What am I thinking? Back at it Monday with Father John Tregilio. Uh, Tuesday, we have our celebrity producer is throwing me off now. Our <laughs> Tuesday, Father Wade Benizis. Wednesday, Father Mitch Paqua. Thursday, Dominican Father Brian Milady is here, and we'll wrap it back up again next week with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. I hope each and every one of you have a terrific weekend. Until we get together Monday, God bless.